Hello, and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today, we're continuing with the first chapter of The Wretched of the Earth. This whole section has been about violence, how violence can be used by colonized peoples, and how violence is not allowed to them, or how violence is portrayed for certain people and portrayed differently for other people. Technically, we're finishing a section. Uh, this is a subchapter. I won't bore you with the details, but we're hitting an actual proper stopping point, and next week will be a new section before we get on to actual chapter 2. But that just means this is a slightly shorter episode than previous weeks. So, let's dig in and finish out this section. Let us return to considering the single combat between native and settler. We have seen that it takes the form of an armed and open struggle. There is no lack of historical examples. Indochina, Indonesia, and of course North Africa. But what we must not lose sight of is that this struggle could have broken out anywhere. In Guinea as well as in Somaliland. And moreover, today it could break out in every place where colonialism means to stay on. In Angola, for example. The existence of an armed struggle shows that the people are decided to trust in violent methods only. He of whom they have never stopped saying that the only language he understands is that of force, decides to give utterance by force. In fact, as always, the settler has shown him the way he should take if he is to become free. The argument the native chooses has been furnished by the settler, and by an ironic turning of the tables, it is the native who now affirms that the colonialist understands nothing but force. The colonial regime owes its legitimacy to force, and at no time tries to hide this aspect of things. Every statue, whether of Faderbe, or of Liotte, or Bujo, or of Sergeant Blandon, all these conquistadors perched on colonial soil do not cease from proclaiming one and the same thing. We are here by the force of bayonets. Footnote 9. This sentence is easily completed. During the phase of insurrection, each settler reasons on a basis of simple arithmetic. This logic does not surprise the other settlers, but it is important to point out that it does not surprise the natives either. To begin with, the affirmation of the principle, it's them or us, does not constitute a paradox, since colonialism, as we have seen, is in fact the organization of a Manichaean world a world divided up into compartments. And when in laying down precise methods the settler asks each member of the oppressing minority to shoot down 30 or 100 or 200 natives, he sees that nobody shows any indignation and that the whole problem is to decide whether it can be done all at once or by stages. Footnote 10. The chain of reasoning, which presumes very arithmetically the disappearance of the colonized people, does not leave the native overcome with moral indignation. He has always known that his duel with the settler would take place in the arena. The native loses no time in lamentations, and he hardly ever seeks for justice in the colonial framework. The fact is that if the settler's logic leaves the native unshaken, it is because the latter has practically stated the problem of his liberation in identical terms. We must form ourselves into groups of 200 or 500, and each group must deal with a settler. It is in this manner of thinking that each of the protagonists begins the struggle. For the native, this violence represents the absolute line of action. The militant is also a man who works, 
The questions that this organization asks the militant bear the mark of this way of looking at things. Where have you worked? With whom? What have you accomplished? The group requires that each individual perform an irrevocable action. In Algeria, for example, where almost all the men who called on the people to join in the national struggle were condemned to death or searched for by the French police. Confidence was proportional to the hopelessness of each case. You could be sure of a new recruit when he could no longer go back into the colonial system. This mechanism, it seems, had existed in Kenya among the Mau Mau, who required that each member of the group should strike a blow at the victim. Each one was thus personally responsible for the death of that victim. To work means to work for the death of the settler. This assumed responsibility for violence allows both strayed and outlawed members of the group to come back again and to find their place once more, to become integrated. Violence is thus seen as comparable to a royal pardon. The colonized man finds his freedom in and through violence. This rule of conduct enlightens the agent because it indicates to him the means and the end. The poetry of César takes on in this precise aspect of violence a prophetic significance. We may recall one of the most decisive pages of his tragedy, where the rebel, indeed, explains his conduct. The rebel. My name, an offense, my Christian name, humiliation, my status, a rebel, my age, the Stone Age. The mother. My race, the human race, my religion, brotherhood. The rebel. My race, that of the fallen, my religion. But it's not you that will show it to me with your disarmament. Tis I myself, with my rebellion and my poor fist clenched and my woolly head. I remember one November day. It was hardly six months ago. The master came into the cabin in a cloud of smoke, like an April moon. He was flexing his short muscular arms. He was a very good master, and he was rubbing his little dimpled face with his fat fingers. His blue eyes were smiling, and he couldn't get the honeyed words out of his mouth quick enough. The kid will be a decent fellow, he said, looking at me, and he said other pleasant things too. The master, that you had to start very early, that twenty years was not too much to make a good Christian and a good slave, a steady, devoted boy, a good commander's chain-gang captain, sharp-eyed and stone-armed, and all that man saw of my son's cradle was that it was the cradle of a chain-gang captain. We crept knife in hand. The mother. Alas, you'll die for it. The rebel. Killed. I killed him with my own hands. Yes. T'was a fruitful death. A copious death. It was night. We crept among the sugar canes. The knives sang to the stars, but we did not heed the stars. The sugar canes scarred our faces with streams of green blades. The mother. And I had dreamed of a son to close his mother's eyes, the rebel. But I chose to open my son's eyes upon another son, the mother. Oh, my son, son of evil and unlucky death, the rebel, mother of living and splendid death, the mother. Because he has hated too much, the rebel. Because he has too much loved, the mother. Spare me, I am choking in your bonds. I bleed from your wounds, the rebel. And the world does not spare me. There is not anywhere in the world a poor creature who's been lynched or tortured in whom I am not murdered and humiliated. The mother. 
God of heaven, deliver him. The rebel, my heart, thou wilt not deliver me from all that I remember. It was an evening in November, and suddenly shouts lit up the silence. We had attacked, we the slaves, we the dung underfoot, we the animals with patient hooves. We were running like madmen, shots rang out, we were striking, blood and sweat cooled and refreshed us. We were striking where the shouts came from, and the shouts became more strident, and a great clamour rose from the east. It was the outhouses burning, and the flames flickered sweetly on our cheeks. Then was the assault made on the master's house. They were firing from the windows. We broke in the doors. The master's room was wide open. The master's room was brilliantly lighted, and the master was there, very calm, and our people stopped dead. It was the master. I went in. It's you, he said, very calm. It was I, even I, and I told him so. The good slave, the faithful slave, the slave of slaves. And suddenly his eyes were like two cockroaches, frightened in the rainy season. I struck, and the blood spurted. That is the only baptism that I remember today. Footnote 11. It is understandable that in this atmosphere, daily life becomes quite simply impossible. You can no longer be a fella, a pimp, or an alcoholic as before. The violence of the colonial regime and the counter-violence of the native balance each other and respond to each other in an extraordinary reciprocal homogeneity. This reign of violence will be the more terrible in proportion to the size of the implantation from the mother country. The development of violence among the colonized people will be proportionate to the violence exercised by the threatened colonial regime. In the first phase of this insurrectional period, the home governments are the slaves of the settlers, and these settlers seek to intimidate the natives and their home governments at one and the same. They use the same methods against both of them. The assassination of the mayor of Evian, in its method and motivation, is identifiable with the assassination of Ali Boumengel. For the settlers, the alternative is not between Algérie, Algérienne, and Algérie Française, but between an independent Algeria and a colonial Algeria, and anything else is mere talk and attempts at treason. The settlers' talk is implacable, and one is only staggered by the counter-logic visible in the behaviour of the native, insofar as one has not clearly understood beforehand the mechanisms of the settlers' ideas. From the moment that the native has chosen the methods of counter-violence, police reprisals automatically call forth reprisals on the side of the nationalists. However, the results are not equivalent. For machine gunning from airplanes and bombardments from the fleet go far beyond in horror and magnitude any answer the natives can make. This recurring terror demystifies once and for all the most estranged members of the colonized race. They find out on the spot that all the piles of speeches on the equality of human beings do not hide the commonplace fact that the seven Frenchmen killed or wounded at the Col de Sacomodi kindles the indignation of all civilized consciences, whereas the sack of the Duars, footnote 12, of Gergur, and of the Decras of Jera, and the massacres of whole populations, which had merely called forth the Sacomodi ambush as a reprisal, all this is of not the slightest importance. Terror, 
Counter-terror. Violence. Counter-violence. This is what observers bitterly record when they describe the circle of hate, which is so tenacious and so evident in Algeria. In all armed struggles, there exists what we might call the point of no return. Almost always, it is marked off by a huge and all-inclusive repression, which engulfs all sectors of the colonized people. This point was reached in Algeria in 1955, with the 12,000 victims of Philipville, and in 1956, with Lacoste's instituting of urban and rural militias. Footnote 13. Then it became clear to everybody, including even the settlers, that things couldn't go on as before. Yet the colonized people do not chalk up the reckoning. They record the huge gaps made in their ranks as a sort of necessary evil. Since they have decided to reply by violence, they therefore are ready to take all its consequences. They only insist in return that no reckoning should be kept either for the others. To the saying, all natives are the same, the colonized person replies, all settlers are the same. Footnote 14. When the native is tortured, when his wife is killed or raped, he complains to no one. The oppressor's government can set up commissions of inquiry and of information daily if it wants to. In the eyes of the native, these commissions do not exist. The fact is that soon we shall have had seven years of crimes in Algeria, and there has not yet been a single Frenchman indicted before a French court of justice for the murder of an Algerian. In Indochina, in Madagascar, or in the colonies the native has always known that he need expect nothing from the other side. The settler's work is to make even dreams of liberty impossible for the native. The native's work is to imagine all possible methods for destroying the settler. On the logical plane, the Manichaeism of the settler produces a Manichaeism of the native. To the theory of the absolute evil of the native, the theory of the absolute evil of the settler replies. The appearance of the settler has meant, in terms of syncretism, the death of the aboriginal society, cultural lethargy, and the petrification of individuals. For the native, life can only spring up again out of the rotting corpse of the settler. This, then, is the correspondence term by term, between the two trains of reasoning. But it so happens that for the colonized people, this violence, because it constitutes their only work, invests their characters with positive and creative qualities. The practice of violence binds them together as a whole, since each individual forms a violent link in the great chain, a part of the great organism of violence, which has surged upward in reaction to the settlers' violence in the beginning. The groups recognize each other, and the future nation is already indivisible. The armed struggle mobilizes the people, that is to say, it throws them in one way and in one direction. The mobilization of the masses, when it arises out of the war of liberation, introduces into each man's consciousness the ideas of a common cause, of a national destiny, and of a collective history. In the same way, the second phase, that of the building up of the nation, is helped on by the existence of this cement, which has been mixed with blood and anger. Thus, we come to a fuller appreciation of the originality of the words used in these underdeveloped countries. During the colonial period, the people are called upon to fight against oppression. After national liberation, they are called upon to fight against poverty, illiteracy, and underdevelopment. The struggle, they say, goes on. 
the people realize that life is an unending contest. We have said that the natives' violence unifies the people. By its very structure, colonialism is separatist and regionalist. Colonialism does not simply state the existence of tribes, it also reinforces it and separates them. The colonial system encourages chieftaincies and keeps alive the old marabou confraternities. Violence is an action all-inclusive and national. It follows that it is closely involved in the liquidation of regionalism and of tribalism. Thus, the national parties show no pity at all toward the Cades and the customary chiefs. Their destruction is the preliminary to the unification of the people. At the level of individuals, violence is a cleansing force. It frees the native from his inferiority complex and from his despair and inaction. It makes him fearless and restores his self-respect. Even if the armed struggle has been symbolic and the nation is demobilized through a rapid movement of decolonization, the people have the time to see that the liberation has been the business of each and all and that the leader has no special merit. From thence comes that type of aggressive reticence with regard to the machinery of protocol, which young governments quickly show. When the people have taken violent part in the national liberation, they will allow no one to set themselves up as liberators. They show themselves to be jealous of the results of their action, and take good care not to place their future, their destiny, or the fate of their country in the hands of a living god. Yesterday, they were completely irresponsible. Today, they mean to understand everything and make all decisions. Illuminated by violence, the consciousness of the people rebels against any pacification. From now on, the demagogues, the opportunists, and the magicians have a difficult task. The action which has thrown them into a hand-to-hand struggle confers upon the masses a voracious taste for the concrete. The attempt at mystification becomes, in the long run, practically impossible. And that concludes our reading for this week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts about books, anime, video games, movies. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. That's all for this week, though. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.